with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their stories. I'm Scott Hummel. Let's get right to it. Our guest is a Vietnam War veteran who served in the United States Army from 1967 to 1970 and was stationed at the 93rd Evacuation Hospital in Long Bing, Vietnam. She was assigned to Ward 3, which specialized in surgical critical care and recovery room patients. The hospital also was the, the burn center for Vietnam. She served on the Canal Winchester City Council for 28 years and currently is a commissioner on the Franklin County Veterans Service Commission. Decorations include the National Defense Service Medal, Vietnam Campaign Medal with 60 device and two bronze service stars, and an overseas bar. From Canal Winchester, Ohio, First Lieutenant Roberta Mershon. Bobby, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you very much. Bobby, for starters, tell us a little about yourself, your family, what keeps you busy these days, organizations you're part of, that sort of thing. Well, I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, there, I graduated from high school in 1965. And for those of you who aren't, who were not as old as I am, back then, if you were a woman, you had a choice of being a teacher, a secretary, you could do, you could be a hairstylist or beautician or nurse. Those were your choices. If you, you, you didn't even think about going into any other field because you knew that there just were no women and women went into those four things and that was it. Well, I knew I couldn't be a secretary because I was not very good at typing. No one would want me to fix their hair. That's given. And I did not think I had the temperament to take care of kids. So I followed my mother's steps and became uh, a nurse. I uh, went to St. Vincent School of Nursing. And um, there, while I was in my senior year, the beginning of my senior year, the Army started a program to, in designed to increase the ranks of the military nurses in uh, the, the Army, mainly because of the Tet Offensive and the um, many more soldiers that were in the Army at that time. So the way this worked was that you, uh, upon graduation and passing your state boards, you would agree to two years of nursing in the Army, and they would pay you, put you in the Army during your senior year as a PFC, pay you PFC wages the entire year, and then once you graduated then you uh, and became an RN, then you were discharged and then uh, commissioned as a, a second lieutenant in the Army Nurse Corps. Now, when we were actually there to become commissioned, there was about five minutes 
between the time you were discharged and the time you were actually commissioned. There were 12 of us in my class that had agreed to this program. Why we didn't all get up and walk out the door, I don't know. <laughs> well, your mom had encouraged you, right? As you mentioned, she was a nurse, and she yes. was she sort of encouraged you into this as well. Yes. She worked at uh, the Army Hospital in San Francisco, but she worked there as a civilian, and she almost became a nurse. Uh, in 1939, but they wouldn't let her in because she had flat feet. <laughs> mm. Well, your dad also was in the military, right? Was he served in World War II? Yes, he was worked in the Navy Reserves uh, and uh, was basically here in the States in the Navy Reserves and did a lot of, he was an engineer and did a lot of their communications uh, uh, stuff that they did during the war in uh, Indiana. So between you and all the other 12 classmates, was there any reservation among any of you? Or did you all just sort of say, let's go at it? <laughs> it was more like, let's go at it. You know, it you know, this was our big thing. You know, we graduated. We could travel. We didn't have to stay at our home hospital if we didn't want to. And everybody pretty much went all over all over the country. I was lucky. My first assignment was at Fort Ord, California. Now, what what more could you ask for? One hour south of San Francisco, right there on the coast. I couldn't ask for more. Now, did any of your classmates were these anyone any of the classmates you went to high school with as well, or just college? College. Okay. College. And then you did basic training at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. What was that experience like for you as a woman? I mean, you're learning the military way of doing things. How did that go? And tell us a little bit about the map reading course incident. <laughs> I have to tell you, basic training for officers is nothing, was nothing, never intended to be anything like basic training for the, the enlisted guys or even the enlisted women. This was... Uh, you could go out partying every night if you wanted to. You simply became too tired to do all that. You knew that they weren't going to flunk you because they'd already invested a lot of money in you. So you kind of took the courses and paid attention, and you learned that was there was uh, the right way of doing things and the Army way of doing things. So you put that all in. I learned that... I was a second lieutenant, therefore anything that had any brass or shiny metal on their shoulders or hat, I saluted. The rest of the other people saluted me, and I didn't go into the details. I was not a G.I. Jane. Now, we did have a... uh, go out into the field at Camp Bullis and learn, um, you know, how to do all the stuff you do to set up a field hospital. That day, I believe we had been out to the the junior officers club the night before. We didn't get in till late. So when I got up that morning, I put on my uniform and got it all ready, got down there, got on the bus, got off the bus, and the drill sergeant pulls me over. Well, even then, I knew that was not a good sign. He proceeded to tell me that I had my ar- my nurse's army insignia upside down. Mm. Oh, my God. 
Did he tell me that? I mean, I cannot repeat to you the words that he used to tell me that. <laughs> but I can tell you this. I never got that wrong again no. the rest of the, my time in the I'll Army. Bet. I'll bet. <laughs> and then, then they split us up in three to do a map reading course. We had to find two signs or something and then do our thing. Okay, so we get on this map reading course. Find the first sign, no problem. Then we start marching through what I can only hope to think was the state of Texas. We may have been out of the state of Texas. I wouldn't know. Overhead, soon, a helicopter came down, and on the bullhorn, I heard, you are completely off the map reading course. Please return to the beginning. How are you supposed to do that if you're that far off? How do you know how to get back? Well, that was my question. I had no idea. Believe me, none. But we eventually just wandered until we found somebody and got back again. <laughs> well, how much how much from what you had learned in college as far as just nursing alone was different from what you had learned in basic training? Well, actually, they didn't try to teach you everything along. You, they counted on you knowing your nursing. This was all how to incorporate it into the the paperwork and your shifts and, and stuff like that. To set up an Army field hospital, now that was something a little bit different. We've never done something like that. And it showed you how how they had the pre-op area uh, looked for them, you know, be able to look for the major wounds, brought you into the OR and then the post-op. And it was all, you know, volunteers. Of course, I volunteered to be on the stretcher. <laughs> being <laughs> being <laughs> G.I. Jane, I was. <laughs> and then your first duty assignment was in California. But then you met this captain. Yes. Your future husband, Dan, who in August of 1969 was deployed to Vietnam. And you then volunteered to go. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, when he got went, oh my gosh, my heart was broken. I, you know, here I was, what, 22 years old. I was sure I was. That was the end. So I knew I could call the Department of the Army in Washington D.C., and that's what I did. I called the Army, and I got a hold of this E somebody. I don't know who or a sergeant. And I can rem- and ask him to pull my name for orders to Vietnam, and I can remember him saying, "Lieutenant, why on the world would you want to leave sunny California for Vietnam?" And of course, I had no good reason. I couldn't tell him that I was totally in love and blah 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 blah. So anyway, that's what they did, and sure enough, by October, I was on my way to Vietnam. You're listening to Marching Orders. Now, Bobby, your brother David, he was there already. And your arrival over there because of regulations led to um, his departure, right? Yes. Uh, there's a rule in the Army you can't have two family members in the same battle zone. So when I got there, uh, he was up. He was a Marine up in um, uh, Da Nang. And uh, he called me or I called him and let him know that I was in country. And he had just re-upped for his second tour of duty over there. Had been back maybe a month, and he was not in the safest place the second time around. So as soon as 
I was in country, he put in the paperwork, and uh, I think they had him out of there within two weeks, and he was back home again. And I'm glad about that. May have saved his life. Yes, exactly. And you were stationed in, in Long Mean. That's about an hour. Long so, Ben. Long Ben. Yes. That's about an hour or so northeast of Minho City. Well, it's uh, Saigon to me. Now, it's Homeine City maybe what it is today, but it was Saigon to me. And this was an evac hospital, and you were assigned to Ward 3, which specialized in surgical critical care and burn patients. Even with all the training you had in basic and as a nurse, did it seem overwhelming from the start? I mean, almost almost immediately, you did have to deal with an emergency involving a helicopter pilot. I, these were wounds like no one, you, you can't, unless you're in a war zone, you don't see wounds like this. I had not not anywhere near seen anything like this before. When I was in at Fort Ord, I was in charge of a pediatric clinic, so... I hadn't even taken care of post-operative Vietnam vets back in the in the states, let alone uh, just in in the surgical uh, ICU setting. The first the first day I was there, I here I was in my bright green uniform and shiny black boots, and everybody knew that I was one of the new guys. I mean, it was just obvious. And I came in, and the nurse's station was two big desks shoved together in the center of uh, a building shaped in the uh, like a red cross. So each wing, you had four wings. One wing was recovery room. One wing they used for burn patients, another for abdominal wound, another for chest wounds. Well, when I was there... I was just meeting the people that I would be working with, just meeting these colleagues. And I noticed this one uh, patient who was situated very close to the nurse's station. And while I was watching, he, uh, he had a, a graft that blew. This guy had been a helicopter pilot, medevac pilot. And there probably are no more braver people in this world than those medevac pilots because they would fly into enemy combat situations with nothing more than that red cross painted on the bottom of their helicopter to protect them. Well, unfortunately, Charlie looked at that as a bullseye and would shoot using that Red, Red Cross used that as a, a marker to shoot, and a round had gone up through his buttocks, nicking his iliac artery. Well, while I was standing there, the graft that they had put on blew. Hmm. I watched while all of my uh, soon-to-be co-workers uh, transfused about 30 units of O-positive blood into this guy because it was just pouring out of him and shoved him or brought him back to the OR to have that repaired again. I thought, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? And remember, I came from a pediatric clinic. I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to do this? But you don't really have time to think about those things when you're working in a surgical ICU setting within two weeks or within a week because we didn't keep them that long. 
that patient was my patient. And I was almost afraid to touch him because I did not want that graft to blow again. So it was, you know, you learn. You just, you know, you realize what has to be done and you do it. Just that simple. You let your instincts take over and you start working. And then you weren't there long. Aside from that, you, you already weren't there long. And then you had your first mass casualty incident. And it was a really late night, early morning type of thing. You only had three nurses and three corpsmen who were on duty. Define what a mass cow is and and describe that incident. I mean, you went from having, what, five patients suddenly to several, right? What what that is, a mass cow is any time you get over 50 patients at one time. Now, we ran the recovery room in that unit, and... Um, I fully expected the recovery room to be filled. But what I didn't expect was that so many of those guys would meet the criteria for staying in ICU. We started out with about five patients. We tried to transfer those who we could. Generally, you didn't ask the next shift to come in and help you because you knew that they were going to have to have their strength and wits about them to carry on after you left. So you just learn to work with the corpsman. And I can't tell you um, enough good things about the corpsman that I worked with. They were fantastic. What they did they were, do? What was, what was their role? Their role was to help us, assist us in vital signs. And uh, some of them did some of the blood draws. Uh, some of them, you know, helped get the patients up. And while some did respiratory therapy, uh, you name it, they did it. And uh, they were so geared to just exactly what needed to be done as much as you were. You just went and you just learned to work when they started coming in because we had four operating rooms so they would be coming in in waves of four and then you had to recover them from the anesthetic and then decide if they could be transferred to another unit or whether they were going to stay here in ICU and that night we went from five or six patients discharged or transferred a couple of them and then we ended up with so many patients by the time morning shift came that we had filled all 38 regular ICU beds plus we had some in recovery room beds that could not be discharged they were there in ICU for sure so it, it was just amazing. But you just simply had to work smarter, faster, and more efficiently. And uh, that's what you did. That's simply what you did. Did any of your training in basic or even in uh, as a nurse, did you ever train for mass casualty incidents? Never. So this Never. was a brand new thing. So you're, well, it was on yeah. the job training right there. Well, there is no place you could get that kind of training if you think about it i mean this is a wartime situation there is unless and even if it was some sort of a mass cow with the you know accident or something like that these wounds were not the same but the ammunition that they used didn't just penetrate it was designed to stop the enemy 
and that's just exactly what it did. So instead of going through the arm or whatever, it would take your arm off, and it would bounce around inside your your guts if you were there and hit in um, as many organs as you could possibly imagine. You can't, I mean, I was used to like a diagnosis of a cholecystectomy, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, when you got these patients, the list of their diagnosis was um, was you know half the page because those the shrapnel the bullets the whatever would hit all of these organs so you just didn't have a one system injury it was usually multi-system and every everywhere and so you're working a lot of hours as i recall reading 12 hour days six days a week now that's going to be difficult for anybody in any type of job but you had a job that had no room for mistakes. It's no room for errors. Now adding to that, Bobby, you had you had mentioned four operating tables. They're all full. And the ward already was filled way above capacity with a limited number of staff. A patient from the mass cow incident started hemorrhaging. How does an exhausted and probably very stressed out staff handle that type of scenario you just stepped up you don't even know you're exhausted i'm I'm going to tell you you've got the adrenaline pumping you're going you you know call back to the or let the doc know what what's going on here you start getting blood in to replace the blood because being that there were four patients already on that operating room table there was no place to send this guy back to be repaired again so uh, the blood flowed let me tell you we we transfused and transfused keeping his blood pressure up monitoring but that took one nurse and one corpsman just to take care of that particular patient and make sure he did okay so the rest of us had to then step up again and start uh, uh, you know assessing and making sure that everybody that we had taken care of was stable and in good shape and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, quite, quite the night. (laughs) You're listening to marching orders. I'm sure you developed really quite a, um, your staff, I'm sure they camaraderie, I, I imagine probably got to really be a thing and I'm sure you depended a lot on it. Do you remember some of the people that you worked with? I do. We would, uh, they were your family because those were the people you interacted with for 12 hours a day. And a lot of times after the your shift was over, we'd go out to one of the clubs and have a steak uh, or because there was more steak at Long Bend than you could possibly imagine. And then you'd go home and go to bed because you were so tired. It's the only time I actually went home after a shift. I got off at 7 and overslept till 7 the next morning. <laughs> But those guys were were your family. I mean, they were totally your family. So you know, you uh, we would play uh, in the middle of the night if there wasn't anything going on. Because sometimes there wasn't. Sometimes you had just transferred everybody out or whatever. We would play slapjack, and uh, it was usually the corpsman and and us. And we were uh, I was the slapjack queen. I have to tell you, and uh, we would have a good time. We had a good time. And this, this unit also, your particular ward, or this hospital rather, it was also the burn hospital. So anytime there were patients with severe burns, they came here. 
can you remember what types of burns did you see and what were some of the worst ones? This is the, the probably the the worst of the worst is what we saw anywhere from 75% burned to 90% burned. And you're talking, you know, 6 foot three guys. I mean, so they're the exposed areas would be the worst. So you would have facial burns, hands that well went well beyond the third degree category because those what was what was exposed. So you, you it was almost like well done meat on some of these some of these patients. But when they would come in, they uh, would have sulfadine was the uh, treatment of choice. It looks like a cold cream. And you, they would put that, they would debride them in the OR, put them to sleep in the OR, debride everything, and then smear this sulfidine on the, on the burns. Well, once a shift, you would take tongue blades and start scraping off all of that sulfidine, debriding as you went. It was okay if you had 100% third degree burns, you didn't feel anything. But there were a lot of people that didn't, that were not third degree burns, and you would have to medicate them and take care of them in that order. Or even uh, when they were stabilized and ready to go back to Japan, you would have to cover them in this sulfidine put four by eights over every area that was burned, wrap them in curl X. You had chest packs you put over their chest uh, in order for them to be transported to Tonsonute Air Force Base, put in a, a jet to go back to uh, Japan for further treatment. It was, it was not an easy thing for them to go through. What were a lot of the burns from? Grenade types of burns? Uh, napalm. 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 A lot of them were napalm, and a lot of them were unintended napalm. We had a lot of Vietnamese who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It, it was very sad. And then it, that didn't mean that you didn't have other injuries with it. So you could have uh, other injuries as well. And, of course, those soldiers who were in tanks... Those were the ones because there's no place for the compression of a round to go except on that patient. They would come in with limbs missing, all kinds of injuries, in addition to being burned. So it was just like, oh my God, I, I just don't know how, you know, they could feel this, you know, they could want you know have the strength and to want to go on but a lot of these guys did a lot of these guys were just very grateful for everything you did for them and and took care of them uh even though you knew when you looked at them that their lives were never going to be the same again mm -hmm. never there was no way they could be and how did you cope with that emotionally and mentally I remember reading that you never cried during your tour there and often would use humor, but how do you cope with that kind of thing? You put it off in your mind, you don't think about it. You compartmentalize it so you don't, because if you thought, 
about the tragedies, because there were 38 tragedies just about every day I went in, being the, just because of the fact that I was in ICU. If you thought about those, you would be in a heap on the floor crying. So you simply had to put that in a, in a place in your mind where you didn't think about it and just go and do the things you needed to do to get them in the best possible shape so that they could go home and continue their lives. And you used humor. How did you use humor in cases like that? You had to... You had to um, you, you were talking to a bunch of guys. I mean, the young, I had 19 to 20. Most of these guys were younger than I was. So I had, I had this one guy who came in, and um, he had some sort of abdominal injury, and they put a uh, drainage tube in his uh, incision. Well, during the night, it had slipped out. Oh, my gosh, he thought he was going to die. And I, no matter what I said, you know, you're, you're going to be fine. It'll be, it'll, he, it was in his mind that he was going to die because he had lost that drainage t- uh, tube on the first night post-op. Mm-hmm. And finally, I looked at him and I said, look, soldier, that was property of the United States Army. You don't get to keep it. <laughs> And even he had to laugh at that. <laughs> oh, that had to hurt probably laughing, too, I imagine. It did. <laughs> and you did have some some lighter moments, like Christmas. What was so special about Christmas in Vietnam? Well, actually, uh, I flew down to Phu Loi in a helicopter to be with my uh, my boyfriend, soon-to-be husband, Dan, he was a security officer at Fuloi Outpost. And there uh, we uh, stayed there overnight. And uh, I can remember his boss gave us his uh, trailer because the the colonels didn't, you know, they got their own little trailer. And he told Dan there would be no sleepwalking tonight. <laughs> So me and my girlfriend, we got to stay in the trailer that night. So, but we had a, a ward that had dark red curtains on it, so it was just made for Christmas decorations. And somebody brought in a, a cardboard fireplace, and somebody had a rocking chair, and we put a rocking chair, that cardboard f- fireplace up, and I think we won the first prize in the <laughs> Christmas decorating contest that year. And speaking of Dan, you and Dan managed to stay in touch while in country and were actually married in Hawaii. How did you pull that off? Uh, We just decided we were going to Hawaii to get married, and that's what we did. He took, uh, uh, we both took uh, vacation, I think, that time. We went on R&R to to Hong Kong and then took vacation to Hawaii to get married. Uh, We had a, a justice of the peace and a... I believe one of his secretaries was my maid of honor, and uh, I don't know, one of the janitors, I think, was his best man. But it was fine. It was fine. It was a beautiful area. It was great. Mm. You're listening to Marching Orders. So you made it back to the States in 1970, but it was quite an adjustment for starters. You were warned about harassment by some of the civilians, and then professionally you had faced some challenges too. What were some of the challenges you faced after coming home immediately and over the next few months? When we got to uh, Travis Air Force Base, 
the military there told us to change out of our military uniforms and into civilian clothes so that we would not be harassed by uh, civilians down in San Francisco. So that's what I did. But on the plane, I was going to Denver. On the plane, I was sitting next to a young college kid. And, uh, of course, I was proud of what I had done. I, the day before, I'd been taking care of, of uh, veterans or soldiers, very, very much injured soldiers. So I was proud of what I had done. But he kind of looked at me and said, you took care of those baby killers? And I thought, oh, my God, things have changed. Mm. And that was just the beginning. I mean, that was just the beginning. Not that I had that much uh, problem with that, because most people didn't even realize that there were women in Vietnam. So unless I would bring it up, it was never broached. But I, when I went to um, the hospital, Grain Hospitals, where I worked for most of my time, uh, I had to go through can you start an IV? Do you know how to properly suction a patient? And all of these things, which, you know, I have been doing, you know, nonstop for the last year. And it was, it was, it was demeaning. Mm -hmm. It was, it truly was demeaning. <laughs> well, and as you pointed out, a lot of people didn't even realize women were in Vietnam at the time. So a lot of them probably felt kind of comfortable talking about Vietnam negatively around you at the time, not realizing that you had been in. Did you have to deal with any of that? Oh, absolutely. There were a lot of people uh, that would talk negatively. But, you know, the, the person that really suffered that the most was my husband. I believe he. there were times when uh, he uh, was considered one of those crazy Vietnam vets and was... Uh, held back at his job because of it. I mean, it's not, it was not unusual then for that to happen. So those kinds of things affected me more because I didn't want to see him uh, bothered by that more than me. <laughs> what were the next few months like after being back, in addition to just some of the, the harassment you'd mentioned with your job, things that were going on there, having to, um, I guess, Relearn, or so that they thought you were relearning. <laughs> I mean, you're only pulling uh, AK-47 shrapnel wounds out of people. I think you can handle it too. But what were some of the other struggles just dealing with coming back? Um, you had, you still thought of all those patients that you took care of, and never knowing whether what happened to them after you left or after you sent them to Japan because we only kept the patients probably four days just to stabilize and make sure everything was stable before you sent them on a, a jet plane to uh, Japan. So you never, never found the final story. Whereas, you know, in most of my nursing, when you discharge somebody, we're good to go. You're going to be fine. But that was not the case. A lot of them had the, their, the most struggling yet to come when they left us. So that has always been a hard thing, I think, for all of us nurses to try to live with. You never got to know how their case turned out. Whether they were able to uh, 
fit back into society, whether they were being able to overcome some of their injuries that they had, because they were significant. We aren't talking minor injuries here. They were significant. And how'd you end up in Canal Winchester? My husband is uh, grew up in Groveport, and when we were looking for a place to live, uh, we decided on uh, Canal Winchester because that wasn't far from his family. It's been uh, Canal Winchester is a, is a great little town. It's very very good. It's grown a lot, and uh, I think grown in the right way. And Bobby, we talked about this that just. The role that women in play, had played in Vietnam and that not many people knew about it. But you became active in a nonprofit that was designed to change that. It was called the Vietnam Women's Project. Tell us a little about that. Diane Carlson Evans, who was a nurse who served at Play Coup uh, in 1968, she and uh, some of her friends started this movement. Uh, when they went to the Vietnam Wall, they realized there was nothing there to uh, memorialize the women who served. So she began fundraising, and it soon took off. We uh, There was fundraising in all the states. Uh, I did my share for Ohio. We had to battle the uh, bureaucracy of Washington, D.C., there was at one point uh, some of the senators did not want to to have a memorial because after all if the women have a memorial you would have to give the dogs the, the war dogs a memorial and land is precious in in Washington DC and they did not want to do it so it was a battle from the beginning until um, when in the late 80s when they decided we weren't going to give up until we actually got that. So uh, we fundraised and then uh, my friends who we all went together to Washington, D.C. and watched them dedicate the memorial and I saw a lot of the people I worked with at the 93rd back. Mm. There it was very, very nice. <laughs> very good. <laughs> and what keeps you busy these days? Uh, now I am a commissioner for the Franklin County Veterans Service Board, uh, which is more of an outreach thing, totally different from any kind of nursing that I've done in the past. But it's good to be able to make sure that veterans are cared for the way uh, we promised them when they went in the service. So if somebody needs some emergency money for some sort of crisis that they're in, they have a place to go. And Bobby, you've kept busy. You've served on a city council and now at the, the Veterans Service Commission. You worked at Grant Medical Center for 40 years. You've coped with some horrific medical scenes and have had to make a lot of changes. And this is the final question. What advice would you give to veterans or active-duty servicemen and women who, who might be struggling with all the adjustments? And feel free to expand on that, especially for women who have served or are serving. Your time in the military should not be the high point of your life. That is something that occurred. You did your best. You did what you were supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that's the last thing you can do. There's too many people who uh, their claim to fame is their time in the service. 
you need to use that as a, a basis to move on, to use what you learned in the military to exceed in other areas of your interest and use that knowledge well, to help you get where you want to be. Because there's a whole heck of a lot of life and for two or three years that you serve in the military, don't let that be the highlight of your life. Don't let that one time period define you. Keep moving up. United States Army First Lieutenant Roberta Mershon, thanks for joining us and thank you for your service. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders or let us know about a veteran you believe should tell his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. And check us out online at thisweeknews.com and look on our website for a new section, thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. We've got everything there related to our podcast. We have profiles of veterans and we even have some military notes and just other military-based stories. So check that out. Again, that's thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. Look for us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Everything is at thisweeknews. That is at thisweeknews. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.